Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person, real or imagined, or the dark forces of Outre-Terre. It is not intended for children. Jack Morrow here. This is a job I did for days. Control allowed it. I'm not sure where the bureaucratic nicety is. Either way, as with all misbegotten things, this started with Illinois. Everyone who ever went to school near the Mississippi River, within spitting distance of Illinois, knows the Cahokia Mounds. They're fairly famous, even internationally. Most people think that the mounds there are fairly unique. They are not. Not at all. The way I understand it, there was a people that lived before the Amerindians that were racially distinct from them. I'm not talking about the blue-eyed descendants of the Welsh who found America, or the strange ghost-haunted Roman ruins in Canada. These people were... odd. They worshipped gods and demons we do not know the names of, and they practiced trepanation, the act of cutting a hole in the skull, bone molding, and blood sacrifice. Not Aztec or Inca tier, but... Up there. I was sent to a related dig about 100 miles south from the mounds, Illinois side of Missouri. Unismasher took the barely there roads like a champ. The area was covered by heavy woods, mixed with gaps of prairie and farms. I had passed suburbs less than 10 miles over the hills. It was that weird mix of non Chicago, Illinois. Suburb, farm, and deep forest, alternating without rhyme or reason. I do not know if the people there thought about it. The mound in front of me could easily be mistaken for a hill. It was dotted with trees, bits of grass, and weeds, but it had more. It felt like it was, uh, not a part of the world. It was part of the environment, sure, but the hills and slopes didn't have the natural curves leading to it. It was a note that was added in as a flourish, but not considering the octave. Days had several vans and cars outside it, acting as an impromptu fence against any curious passers-by. Tents were being set up by others, suited, or armored agents. Usually they're less... sloppy. An agent in task force gear escorted me into a tunnel cut into the side of the mound. Lights had been strung along the floor. We passed by rooms with other agents within them. They were taking pictures of the walls, the ornaments hanging from hooks, and the mummified bodies. I do not mean the bodies were mummies, but that they were desiccated. They were twisted, and not a few had their hands up in defense. They had met violent ends. Are those gingers? The agent had Duke stitched on his body armor. Ah, you noticed that too? 
we've been letting the conspiracy theorist types talk about it. We entered the last room. A gray-haired man in body armor was with some day's scientist types, looking over a collapsed wall. Can't let the pop historians lose their professorships. Duke saluted the gray-haired man. He signed papers as he talked to me. Something like that, Mr. Morrow. We need to bring back traditional folklore where we can, but vested interests prefer the stuff remain quiet. Like those giants you found out west. Good work escaping, by the way. That was a fight. The man had the hard look of somebody who knew fighting, and wouldn't go down without sticking a knife between death's fleshless ribs. What did you bring me here to do? I like to think he appreciated my directness. One of our own was hit by an unknown effect of an artifact uh, here. He held out his hand and a woman gave him a folder. He flicked through it while he talked. I try not to let these things get out of control. But the agent escaped us, and we lost him in the forests. We are hiring you through the paranormal Pinkertons, Jack Morrow, to hunt down our agent. He handed me a picture. While I would want him back alive, well, in this business there are risks. A man with a rewritten personality is not the same man anymore. Agent Duke will take you to the last siding. Do what you can. Prevent any and all harm it may seek to cause the populace. I studied the picture. It was a crown with antennas sprouting from it, looking surprisingly like an old 1980s TV bunny ears antenna. Well, except more like literal bunny ears. The gold wire and gym work were exquisite. It reminded me of a tower or a crenellated keep from a castle. I might have called it a crown, but it was a piece of technology. It had the right symmetry, the right uh, mix of shapes and nodes that led to the bunny ear receivers. The gray hair man spoke again. It may have mind control powers or telekinesis. I consider it unfortunate that we can't handle this in-house, but the man was a popular agent and there might still be plenty of him in there. I can't risk someone not being able to take the shot. He was done talking and I left. Duke fed me the last of the information. Dan Voigt would be a tough man to take down. He and I had met at Nighthawks almost a year ago, and since then he and I have been in touch over the goings-on in the Ozarks. I caused him no lack of paperwork and well, excitement over that time. I knew that he had taken interest in some archaeological digs, but that's nothing more than white noise. That stuff is one of their main areas of operation. I pushed our friendship aside. Whether or not he had been whammied by some Atlantean mine crown, I knew the man would hate it, if his actions would hurt people he wanted to save, whether or not he was in control of himself. There were three task force agents who moved with me and Duke. I didn't bother with my name, and they didn't offer me theirs. Instead, I relaxed into a hunting posture. They showed me a fuzzy video of him floating through the forest. I didn't bother with ground tracking. Instead, I kept my eye to the forest branches. His last act, before he had lost them, was to unleash an electromagnetic pulse that disabled their vehicles and nearly wiped out their observational equipment. 
The men around me were dressed in strange gear, resembling plastic. I could hear clicks in their vest, and it reminded me of ceramics. I kept an eye on them. In a moment, Duke had slipped some material over his body to match. I was not offered anything, nor would I have taken it. By the time I had a good grasp on the spore left behind by Dan's possessed body, we threw through the forest over fences and practically sprinted through fields. It was a straight line. It was charging towards something. The team with me had no visible ranks, but their body language deferred to Duke. I told him what to report to their base. The first sign anything was wrong was an earthquake that threw us off our feet. I got back up before the shaking had stopped and ran for the plume of smoke just over a hill. Rocks rained down, smashing through the trees. I dodged and weaved as I could. A few chips scratched my face, and a rock the size of my car smashed through a tree and caught my coattails. I shed it and kept running. I had lost my hat, but I didn't notice. This was Major Juju being roiled up. Rocks stopped as suddenly as they had begun. I clambered up the hill and Dover, practically rolling down the slope. The earth was so disturbed it was like trying to walk on unpacked sand. The dust cleared slowly, but I could see massive blocks. Each must have weighed tons, sticking up from the ground. They rose slowly or shook the earth from them. Four obelisks jutted up at the corners. Pods of earth and grass fell off them like raindrops sliding down a car's windshield. More of the stones were rising up from the ground. The sound was so tremendous I thanked God for earplugs, even as I could feel my bones rattle. The effects were not as concentrated as others I have experienced, but it lasted longer and it threw me off my balance. I could not trust heaven or earth to be up or down. It was very much like the voodoo statue in Grigory Horvath's employ. I haven't put pay to either of them yet, have I? I jumped into the mess of stone and dirt rising with and falling away from the monolithic stones and caught the edge of one monstrous piece of masonry that looked like the tail of a dragon. I scrambled up and over. The dust was thick, but the sun shone through enough to show me the layout of this facility. It was a facility. There were four obelisks, each at a corner pointing up. I couldn't read the glyphs on them, but they looked like Aztec or smoother, but mixed with hieroglyphics and Sumerian. I didn't like the implication of any of that. The thundering continued, enough to make me feel my own organs. I ran for a black rectangle promising an entrance, hoping that the sound would lessen inside. I flew down the stairs headlong. I was gratified the sounds died away. I guess thousand-ton stones are great insulating material. The walls were paneled in obsidian or black marble, and carved over every inch, floor to ceiling. Pictographs of people doing things, moving boxes, harvesting crops, praising an obelisk. Nothing too strange. I found a door. It slid open with the slightest pressure, as if newly hung on its groove. I still had my 1911 with me. I hoped I could find my coat and shotgun again, but I didn't think about it. Nor did I think about the task force 
members I had left behind. The corridor beyond was lit by blue and green mushrooms that glowed with inner light beyond the normal bioluminescence. The walls were covered in repeating patterns of their language. It had the marks of being a warning, but I couldn't tell what for. I heard someone running down the stairs behind me. I dodged into an open door, waited, and then grabbed the offender as he passed. It was one of the task squad who ran with me. There was an awkward moment until the two of us recognized each other. By awkward, I mean the two of us got very close and intimate, with knives. By God's grace, we came to our senses. It was Duke. The room we found ourselves in was large, full of strange, clicking machines. Duke called them Babbage machines. They were made of a silver and black metal, and moved with slick motion. The ticking and clacking were rhythmic and orderly. At one wall, a set of circles rotated around an interpretation of the earth. Silver lines spread out and glowed with an inner light, pointing to other circles, and rubies floated in an obsidian blackness. Others were dull, gray, and almost impossible to stare at. My eyes would not focus on them. Rubies mark spots on the American continents from the polar caps to the tip of Antarctica. This is a map. I think we're at that ruby, Duke said. He waved his gun's laser pointer. He took out his phone and used the camera to take a picture. I'm going to send it to an egghead in the know. He started snapping pictures of everything. There was only one entrance. I led Duke back out into the main corridor. There were other rooms, but nothing so dramatic as the first. Some were filled with dusty, red-haired skeletons, or even strange tools neither of us could recognize. Others were bare except for tables and strange round Babbage machines. At times, the rooms would have pneumatic tubes leading to who knows where. There was no sign of Dan Voigt. The rumbling had died away. Instead, there was a hissing and strange whistles echoing through the halls. Duke and I halted silently as he talked into the radio in his ear. He stood stock still. Launch windows. What? The wall displayed viable launch vectors from points across the map. It hit me. The two of us started to run. I've read a little science fiction. I could put together what all that meant. At the center of the complex, we found it. The rocket was more modern than I imagined. There were silver lines and stone blocks propping up a white and yellow tube from below the granite-looking floor to brush the ceiling. The tip was an orange gem with a substance like diamond aerodynamically flowing from it into the white tube. Framed by clear diamond was Dan Voigt. He was dressed in a leather suit studded with strange gems and dials. Lines of copper flowed over his body and into his nostrils. A halo of light surrounded his head. He reclined in a chair, facing up into the sky. Though much of his surroundings were diamond-like, strange consoles grew up to his hands from the material itself. As we stood, stunned, the ceiling cracked open, sliding back into slots along the corner of walls and floors. White clouds rose from the hole in the center of the floor as the rocket twisted into its staging area. I could smell ozone. Electricity crackled in the air, and something more. 
slid over my skin, leaving something like a dust over every exposed inch of me. I fired my 1911 off-center from Dan Boyd's mass. The rabbit ear crown twitched, and the bullet was caught in the middle of the air. It was dropped onto the floor below. The voice that rang out was cold and high-pitched. Destruction of this rocket and this unit's host is not recommended. Dan Boyd spoke into another copper tube. I fired again with the same result. I began to look for something to burn, to throw off the rocket, or at least try to find an off switch. Duke pulled out a computer with an antenna array. Sir, we've connected. There's some sort of field preventing us shooting the target. It can speak and act in self-preservation. This is Colonel Salamander of Day's Central Branch. Who are you and what are your goals? This unit must reach the dark side of the moon and connect into the hard node network. This unit is programmed to recognize the sanctity of life and will return the host if able. You know that the moon is dead, inhabited by ghosts? There are no Atlanteans or whatever you called yourself or your creators up there. I had the feeling I probably shouldn't listen to this, but I did. Duke stood there holding up the antenna device into the air. He probably hoped his boss wouldn't remove his memories after this. Your concern is noted, and will be weighed in the scales against the feather of your sins. You have desecrated the graveyard of kings. This must be reported. Your civilization is dead. If you cooperate with us, we can come to an equitable. There can be no negotiation with grave robbers. What's more, other sites report infestation and looting. You have no argue. Hold. I had found a board of buttons and machines. I could slide square pieces around on a board. They would slip into little slots and images would change as the sliding wall panels changed to match. I had been scrambling the board. Force threw me from my feet. I reached out to catch a bar that stuck out from the side of the obsidian granite console and missed. I tumbled down the stairs, force pushing and pulling me as I fell, so I landed on my back and not on my head. It was very considerate. You will remove yourself from the premises. Return Dan Voigt to self-control and surrender yourself to our care. We cannot communicate if you refuse to bargain. I was pressed down onto the ground. I saw the boards above switch and click, change back into the original formation. The computer, the machine that took control of the body of Dan Voigt, did not change its tone. There was nothing to imply it had feelings or could experience anything it wasn't programmed to. If I put my foot onto the stairs, I was pushed away into the direction of one of the exits out into the granite corridors behind the walls. I took the hint. I ran into the halls. The telekinetic, uh, touch left me immediately upon disappearing from the sight lines. I found a set of stairs and took them up three at a time. I don't think the thing would let me mess with its control panel again. I knew it could block bullets, but how far did it reach? If I could uh, remove the problem, it might just be as good as trying to shove the rocket towards the sun. I charged into the room and nearly shoved Duke, 
I fired my magazine dry at the console. The bunny-eared mind-control helmet did not react in time. My bullets crushed the obsidian squares, sending shrapnel flying in every direction. The hat stopped talking. The board above us, the machine calculating angles and trajectories, began to spin. The angles changed second by second. Equipment in the walls and under our feet snapped. Something hissed within the pit the rocket rose from. This only adds to your sins. The weight increases. When will your bill come due? This was a milder reply than I braced for. The rocket engines flared. The rocket light dazzled me and I staggered back. Duke grabbed my shoulder and pushed me out the door. We ran down the halls, up the stairs. We entered in and out onto the roof area. The diamond tip of the rocket rose past a circular opening. Boss is telling us to keep running. Duke and I vaulted the roof's edge and onto its sloping walls. Too steep to climb, but enough to slide down. The heat lit the trees over our heads, and the sonic booms cracked the sky. The rocket seemed slow at first, but the speed built up and up, and the distances lengthened so it never lost its strange slowness, even as it beat escape velocity. There wasn't much to it. We didn't know whether the rocket had been diverted much or enough from its course. It was aiming for the moon, but the satellites weren't equipped uh, to follow it all the way. I knew, academically, that even if things in space are very large, the void was infinitely larger. I didn't know how to apply that knowledge. I hope it missed, and I hope it keeps missing forever, even if it kills Dan Voigt. A mere machine casting judgment on the soul strikes me like a devil accusing a Christian before the throne of God. It was not its place. I don't claim to be some sort of great theologian, but the judgment of a freeborn man by some unthinking slave artificial intelligence made me angry. The day's leader gruffly thanked me and sent me on my way. I received a package with my trench coat and 1887 shotgun at one of my more public cabins. I'll pick it up when I feel safe. Hopefully you can pull more information from the day's guys than I could. I need to know if Dan Voigt made it to the moon. Jack Morrow, out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio. A license under an attribution non-commercial, share-alike international license. This episode was written by Ben Wheeler and is performed by the same. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Kid Dickerson performs our audio editing. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, or listen to us on unauthorized Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Contact us through Twitter at, at Pinkerton's Ghosts, email us at PinkertonsGhosts at gmail.com, or Send us noble messenger possums with messages strapped to their backs. Don't worry, they know how to find us. Thank you for listening, and good luck.